You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website at trinitychurchdenver.org. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast and your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. And now, please enjoy the sermon. 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. And our Old Testament reading is 1 Samuel chapter 3. I will read verse 1 and then 19 through 21. 1 Samuel 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And then verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I love that you love one another. I want to chat and talk and catch up. Um, But I would encourage you with joy as your pastor um, that when the scriptures are being read on a Sunday, that's not just like a past the time sort of moment until the sermon starts. Um, it is, uh, I, I would say, the, the, there's two vital points in our, in our liturgy. Um, one, when we come to this table um, and the Lord feeds us, and two, uh, when the Lord speaks to us from the scriptures, um, which is what happens when we stand up and read the Bible. So I want to encourage you, greet one another, hug one another, grab coffee very quickly, and then come and eagerly and excitedly and silently um, listen to the word of God being read um, in our liturgy. It's not just kind of a, I don't even know what the whistle means. It's a, it's a central part of what we do when we gather for worship. Good? Okay. Um, I want to pray for us. And then, uh, as I told my daughter last night, um, we are going to, I'm going to preach the entire first 19 chapters of 1 Samuel and my daughter on the phone last night looked and said, those poor, poor people. <laughs> so, that's where we're going. So let me pray, and uh, we will get going. So Father, we come, we come to your word, to hear you speak from your word. To instruct us, to give us wisdom, to give us grace and mercy and peace. And that we might be formed and reformed and and. Um, that, that all the ways that we've been malformed by words spoken and read and 
televised and all the things that, that bombard us week after week after week and just living in this world that's saturated with lies. We, we come now to your word to, to be reminded again of what is true, what is beautiful, what is good, a word that we can trust, a word that we can rely upon, and therefore a word that can shape and redefine the very nature of our lives and relationships. So God, come and in your mercy speak to us. God, I pray that you'd help me to be faithful with your word, to handle it faithfully um, as we set out again to hear you speak in Samuel. In your name we pray, amen. So here's where we're going to go today. I want to set up for you why we're in Samuel, even remind you of why we're in Samuel. What are we doing? It's been several months since we've been in this book. Um, And so I want to tell you first why we're in Samuel, and then I want to go um, and we're going to review (laughs) all the chapters, everything that's happened um, thus far in Samuel. And then I want to end by kind of drawing those two things together by um, kind of fixing our attention on, I have eight here written, but I just thought of a ninth. And so we're going to have nine themes, theological themes um, that, that directly flow from Samuel into how we ought to live in this day and age. So we're going to be moving along at a relatively good pace, uh, but I want to begin with the why. And the why has to do with where and when we live now. Um, as we were considering what books to study uh, last year, um, there are some parallels to the situation that you find at the beginning of Samuel to our own day. I heard an author last week say this, um, let's take the story of our present day and let's make it a fantasy novel to see if we can get a better perspective on what's actually happening. Pretend a story, a novel began with um, the, the greatest empire, the most powerful empire, um, the most economically powerful um, empire and society that had ever existed in the history of mankind. Um, imagine it now, maybe on another planet, maybe that'd be helpful. Um, whatever, whatever world, maybe Middle Earth, or it's kind of, I don't claim to be Tolkien, so we'll say Low Earth, um, in some other world existed, and then a hundred years ago, from the beginning of our novel, all the artists went insane. They began painting gibberish and nonsense, and no one could make sense of any of it. And then 50 years after all the artists lost their mind, the society began murdering its own babies. And then decades later, it began to tear apart the very fabric of everything that had made that society what it was. You would know the kind of story that you're in. You would know the place that you're in. You would know the trajectory of what's happening in the context of that story. That's where we are. A hundred years ago, all the artists went mad. Fifty years ago, we began murdering our children. And now everything that has held society together, everything that people have just known for ages seems to be collapsing and being torn down with great intensity. And so we find ourselves on a really, really strange day. (laughs) And in the midst of that, the people sent to teach, to explain, 
to demonstrate in the midst of that chaos what was true, what was beautiful, what was good, to to remind the world of of where it had come from, to remind that society of of the God who had made them and how God had structured that world, Um, the very people sent to declare that, to make that known, to, to, to demonstrate that for their neighbors, has been thrust into chaos. It's confused. It's anxious. It's afraid. It's doing everything it can to, to image the chaos around it rather than showing the chaos um, how insane it is. Or it's retreating into a private closet I'm trying to lock the door and keep the world out there, keep the chaos at bay and out there, and we can have our own little quiet world in here. That's the world we're in, and that's the state of much of the church in the West in our day. And it is, in fact, the exact situation that we find Israel in at the beginning of 1 Samuel. And so that's why? See, that wasn't painful. Quick introduction. Israel, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, which, which lines up perfectly with the end of the book of Judges, is in a state of, it's dusk. The sun is setting. Evil has begun to run rampant. As the author of Judges says, um, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Worship of God, the God who had saved them out of Egypt, the God who had graciously, after saving them and redeeming them, given them his law, the worship of this God is neglected. And even the priests, the, one, the ones given to instruct the people, are corrupt, tainted by sin, and wielding their offices and their roles for their own gain rather than prophetically bearing witness to what is true and calling the people to repentance and faith in God. And so that's where 1 Samuel begins. That's where we are. Then you turn to chapters 1 and 2. And this story that begins to unfold for us in chapters 1 and 2 um, is, is set in the midst of that kind of dimming light, that kind of darkness, which seems to be overtaking everything. You, you might be tempted in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that dimming light, um, to, to be absent of hope. And yet, right here at the beginning of chapter 1, like, like a, a movie that, that um, kind of starts with this view of the whole earth and then kind of slowly... I'm a filmmaker here. Um, it kind of like zooms in slowly, piece by piece. So first you see the globe, and then you see the continent, and then it zooms in on the nation, and then it zooms in on a state, and then it zooms on a city, and then it zooms in on a particular neighborhood, and then a particular street. And there at the center of it is a woman, a barren woman, a discouraged, a discouraged woman. Like so often in Scripture, a barren woman. And this woman begins to pray. She begins to ask the Lord to come. She begins to ask the Lord for the most simple 
and seemingly unprofound thing imaginable, she begins to plead with God to give her a son. Um, the, the priest, so unused to seeing people pray, assumes she's drunk. She's not drunk. She simply knows her own desperate plight in the midst of a nation marked by desperation, and she pleads with God to answer her prayer, to hear her prayer. And God does. God gives her a son. And so in the midst of this darkness, this dusk, this seemingly setting sun, which we're about to find out is in fact setting, but setting so that, it, uh, so that the sun may rise again, a woman gives birth to hope. A, go- a woman gives birth to something that will bring about something brand new. Not, not just a, um, a, a revived Israel, but a resurrected Israel. Not just um, a revived age for the people of God in the world, but actually um, a, a totally restored and renewed and resurrected age for this people. In chapter 2, we see that Hannah, even in her prayers for a son, knows that this means something far, far greater than, than just that one particular woman was given one particular child. She knows that this marks, in fact, the ways of God, that God intends to bring down the proud and to raise up the humble. He intends to tear down idolatry and to raise up faithfulness. He intends to restore worship. Um, As as she says in verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. She acknowledges something right off the bat here in chapter 2. Something that we must learn about the very ways and nature of God. In judgment and destruction, he always brings forth life. His ways are always the same. Death and resurrection. Judgment to bring forth life. And so it is with Samuel. So in chapters 1 and 2, we find a corrupted priesthood. The heart of Israel's worship is marked by sin, marked by idolatrous worship, marked by priests stealing, not just from the people, but from God himself, sexual confusion and immorality, and in the midst of it, the prayers of a woman seeking the redemption of God. We turn to chapter 3, and we have the text that we read today, Um, and and the text tells us the state of the world um, where Samuel appears. It says in verse 1, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. It was hard to find. You couldn't hear God speaking. You couldn't see and hear and understand who God was and what God wanted for us and for the world. There was no frequent vision. People didn't hear the word of God and therefore they didn't see God. But in the midst of that dimming light, something happens. In verse 21, which is a startling and wonderful verse, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. 
And so simultaneously, two things are happening. In chapter 4, we're going to see um, a kind of judgment that, that seals Israel's fate in one sense. And at the same time, a light being born, a a vision of God um, being conveyed and spoken again. And and the thing that must be seen is that God must be seen. And how is he to be seen? In his word. And so his word must come. His word must be spoken. It must be sung. It must be preached. It must be counseled. It must be read. It must be meditated on. And it must be declared. Or God will not be seen. So the word comes to Samuel. And through Samuel, it begins to go out and be spoken to all of Israel. But before that word begins to bear fruit... Tragedy happens. So in chapter 4, Israel goes to war with the Philistines. and They are routed. The tabernacle, the place of Israel's worship is lost. The ark, the sign of God's covenant grace to his people, is taken by the Philistines. Eli and his sons die. So the priesthood dies the central place of worship, of sacrifice, of instruction in God's law, God's word, the the place where the forgiveness of sins was counted again and again and again is gone. But, But God, in the face of Israel's faithlessness, proves himself faithful. He doesn't send Israel into exile, though they deserved it. Instead, he himself goes into exile. Then in chapter 5, we see what God does when he goes into exile. And what's interesting about this in terms of the the rest of Scripture, whether whether you're talking about Israel as they later go into um, exile in Babylon, or the church as they're thrust out of Jerusalem um, to go and and live among the nations, is that God does what God always does. When God is thrust into the midst of nations that worship idols, he kills the idols. God goes to war. So my favorite chapter in the book is chapter 5. The ark goes to the Philistines. You remember the story? They place it at the feet of their god, Dagon. The next morning, Dagon falls down. They think this must be some sort of weird earthquake. Something strange must have happened. And so they set Dagon back up on his pedestal. Mighty god that he is must be set up. Um, And then the next morning they come in and Dagon's hands are removed and his head is removed. And then everywhere the ark goes, the ark is then sent from Dagon's temple on a tour of the cities um, of the Philistines. And everywhere God goes, he brings plagues. He brings judgment on those who refuse to worship and fear him. He does what God always does. He destroys the idols of the nations. He lets sin be exposed for what it is, a plague that destroys And so we get to chapter 6, and the ark is returned to Israel. Chapter 6 and 7, Israel is called by Samuel to a a repentance, to put away all their idols, to 
put away all their sacred trees, to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord alone. And the people of God are at the beginnings of something new, something good, a new restoration. But before we get there, we get to chapter 8, where, if you'll remember, God is rejected by Israel as their king. And they ask, they demand that Samuel will give them a king like the other nations. We see here a a, a kind of rejection um, at the heart of Israel's life where they don't want um, a a God who is king with judges under him, therefore uh, kind of enforcing his law, enforcing his judgments, enforcing his justice in the land. Um, They want uh, a man who is king. They, they want a man to be almost like a godlike figure for them, to, to bring salvation to them, to, to they can count on, to go and fight for them. So they reject God as their king. They demand a king of their own. And then we get to what I call the tedious chapters. Tedious because Saul is tedious. Um, chapters 9 through 11. Um, Samuel goes... Um, to a man of Benjamin and he goes there and he calls Saul to be king. Um, Saul has a relatively good start, if not a tedious one. He finds himself hiding um, among the luggage, which seems like an odd place to hide, um, especially for a man who's very handsome and very tall, uh, which the text makes a point of telling us. Um, But he can't hide. And so um, he is called by Samuel. He's anointed by Samuel. He's then um, set before the people as the king, um, the king that's been given to them in the face of their demands, uh, even in the face of Samuel's warnings and God's warnings. um, They set Saul over them as their king. And he has, well, he has a pretty good start. The text begins by telling us a serpent king. And one of the themes that kind of goes throughout the entire book of Samuel um, is the idea that there always is a serpent in the, in the garden. And there's somebody must kill the serpent in the garden. So Nahash comes to make war on Israel. As he comes to make war on Israel, um, Saul is, the text is quite explicit, filled with the spirit of God, calls Israel to battle and routs Nahash and those that would destroy the people of God. That's chapter 11. So we've got Saul, tedious beginning, but good beginning, but also a good beginning. Seems humble, seems submitted to the Lord, filled with the Spirit of God, waging war on the enemies of God and God's people. And then we come to chapter 12. We have what I would say is the, the beginning of the beginning. The beginning of the new beginning. Um, the, the kingdom is renewed. Um, as it tells us there at the end of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, the people of God are called together. Saul now, uh, Samuel finally hands his reins of authority completely over to Saul. Um, the naysayers in the crowds have, uh, have been silenced. Um, Saul graciously didn't kill them. But finally now, all the tribes of Israel together. And this marks actually a a new progression in the history of Israel. Um, Prior to this, you had 12 tribes kind of living largely independently, um, but all under uh, the the, the same law. With judges that would travel among 
those tribes, enforcing God's law, um, and a tabernacle that kind of was a center place for them as the people of God. That, that um, as the tabernacle became less and less central to their life, um, as the judges became reduced and some of them corrupt, um, the 12 tribes began to operate independently. Uh, but here with the ascension of Saul, um, his defeat of the serpent, Samuel handing the reins over, the kingdom now comes together. And so a new age, a new dawn, a new progression in the history of God's work through Israel and among the nations begins. And then, well, things don't last long. Chapters 13 through 15 to describe the fall of Saul. And it describes the fall of Saul in terms of three primary sins. His first sin is a presumption in worship. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He doesn't wait for the priest to come, for the prophet to come, to offer the sacrifices on behalf of Israel. But he presumes to operate in that role himself. He presumes to bring the offerings to God, not waiting on Samuel. Secondly, he sins against God and his people. And you remember in chapter 14, and Saul makes a, a foolish declaration, and it's foolish in two senses. Um, he, he tells uh, the army, as they're pursuing the Philistines, um, that they, if any man eats before evening, he's going to be put to death. That's foolish for two reasons. One, it's foolish because it's your army. You want them to be strong enough to slaughter all the Philistines that they're going after. Um, they need to eat. And so why would you forbid them from eating all day as they're doing the hard work of swinging their swords? And throwing their spears. That takes a lot of calories. You need the calories. So it's foolish just in the sense um, that it's putting a burden on his men. It's putting a burden on his army. Um, that, that's just a foolish one. It's an unnecessary one. But secondly, it's foolish in this. Um, the king is meant to be subject to the law of God. In other words, he's not supposed to create or enforce laws or rules that are not created by God and he's sent to him to enforce. In other words, Saul's great sin in this text is not just foolishness in that it was cruel to his men. It's presumption again. It's claiming, it's claiming to have the same kind of authority that God does. All of Samuel's warnings about the coming of a king who, who would be tyrannical and begin to rule over them as though he were like a god, Saul is beginning to take on. So here he created a rule, a law, a law breaking, the breaking of which would result in death. It was not given by God. It was not ordered by God. And so he presumes here in his role as king to have the same kind of authority God does. And so Saul's first sin is a presumption in worship. Second sin is the presumption to be the lawgiver. And his third sin is disobedience to God. God sends Saul and his army to wage war on, his, on God's enemies to, to, to do what is called the ban, to destroy, utterly to destroy a people, their cattle and all of their people. Instead, Samuel, or Saul saves the best of the cattle. He doesn't kill the king of that people. So we have the famous text, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, 
Samuel confronting Saul and his disobedience says this, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So we have the end of Saul's age. Kind of. Again, Saul's a tedious character. So he's going to persist, well, for the rest of the book in kind of a tedious role. So I apologize beforehand. He's going to be David's foil. So... Um, we turn then to chapter 16. Samuel is sent to find a new king. He's told to stop mourning for Saul, get over it. And he is sent to Jesse. And he meets Jesse's sons, some of them quite handsome and strapping. Um, and God rejects every single one of them. We have again this famous text um, where uh, God tells Samuel, man looks at the outer appearance, but I look at the heart. So God chooses for himself a king to, be, to, to, to rule over Israel who's not like Saul, but merely tall and powerful looking and strong. He was, um, the text tells us literally his heads and shoulders above all the other men of Israel. Um, instead, he chooses a man um, of his, he, he, he sets his anointing on a man after his own choosing, which is David. David is then anointed by Samuel, a bit in secret. And then immediately, uh, through the providence of God, is thrust into the service of Saul. And we have this interplay of spirits, which again is going to be really, really important as we look at the rest of Samuel. Um, the spirit of the Lord that had come into and onto Saul as he waged war on God's enemies departs from Saul and comes immediately upon to David. Um, and instead, uh, a spirit, a harmful spirit, a tormenting spirit, is given to Saul. And so David finds himself quite quickly in the court of Saul, playing music to soothe Saul um, as God torments him. And then chapter 17, very long chapter. Chapter again where we have another serpent. This time rather than Saul fighting that serpent, David is fit, sent to fight this serpent. Serpent, of course, being Goliath, We've all heard great stories about Goliath and David, and some of them bad stories about David and Goliath. But in the end, God, fill, uh, David, filled with the Spirit of God, goes and fights um, by faith against Goliath, kills Goliath, cut off, cuts off Goliath's head, and takes his armor. And then we get to where we are. Chapter 18, 19, and following. And what we're going to see in these chapters and kind of how they play themselves out over um, the next few weeks in particular, it is a growing sense of envy in the heart of Saul as he watches God bless David and a kind of enmity that grows up in Saul's court between David and between Saul. We're going to have a great deal to learn from Jonathan and Jonathan's faithfulness to God um, rather than um, looking out for himself. He trusts in God's plan and God's purposes with David. And that's where we find ourselves in the story. A kind of crossroads. 
The sun has set, darkness has dawned, has dawned, has broken over all of Israel, and yet right in the midst of it, something new is happening. And we're, we're not exactly sure how good this is, how bad this is. It seems born out of Israel's own sin, and yet God seems to be blessing it, um, overcoming serpents, destroying idols, raising up a king named David, a king that the, tech, the scriptures will tell us is God's own son, a sign, a shadow of God, the coming of God's true son, Jesus. What do we make of this story as we head into the rest of Samuel? Nine. Are you ready? We're going to sprint because I'm out of time. But we're going to sprint and it's going to be fantastic. One, leadership is the instrument in God's hand for salvation and judgment. It's become common in our day to kind of look at the political mood, to look at different situations and say, God will judge us because of this ruler, or God will judge us because of these things. Um, but, but what you miss, and what really is at the heart of what's, a lot of what's going on in the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, is that the ruler, the king, the leadership, the, the, um, whether that's the priestly leadership, or the sons of the priestly leadership, or the king that God raises up, is actually the means of God's judgment, not just the cause of God's judgment. It's also the means of God's salvation and not really the cause of God's salvation. God raises up Samuel to lead. Um, He doesn't then respond to Samuel's faithfulness and bring about salvation among his people. But rather, it is God's covenant faithfulness, his commitment to saving his people, that raises up a Samuel, that raises up a David. Likewise, it's God's judgment against his people that puts in power a, a king like Saul, who's quickly corrupted, quickly becomes um, self-serving and attempting to be God in his own eyes. Um, the, the way that God works in the world is not just responding to our leadership, uh, but, but actually working through leadership, either for salvation and judgment. So if you look around at our nation and you find us ruled by fools, if you find us ruled by those who hate God, you find us ruled by those who are corrupt, uh, what you should see there is not just a, a foreshadowing of God's judgment, but actually the enactment of God's judgment. Two, political arrangements. Um, there is uh, a great commentary in the book of 1 Samuel um, called The Beginning of Politics. And at the heart of Samuel is a model of how we should understand the functioning of government. Um, and it's simply this. It's, it's actually very, very, very simple. And yet for some really strange reason, um, extremely controversial in our day. Um, the king or the magistrate or the congress or the president or the judge or the prime minister, if you're British, is, is not supposed to function as kind of a, a parallel ruler with him over here and then religious leadership um, delegated to God over here. But rather, the, the, the heart of how all the nations are to be organized is that God is king over all. And any authority at all, whether it's a pastor's authority, elder's authority, or a president's authority, or a congressman's authority, or a judge's authority, 
again, or a prime minister's authority, is meant to be derived from, not just meant, but is derived from God. In other words, everyone is answerable to King Jesus. And so if you find yourself President of the United States, I don't know if any of you are running in the upcoming election, but if you are, let me just give you some instructions. Whatever authority you gain when you take the oath of office, maybe you're running for mayor, whatever authority you gain when you take your oath of office is subject, always subject to God. It is always under his authority. Saul gets in trouble because he goes around that authority, making himself equal to God as a lawgiver and making himself the discerner of when, um, uh, when severity and when mercy should be shown. This is how all politics are supposed to function. And you should vote accordingly. You should push for laws accordingly. And you should think politically about the world accordingly. Number three, the central thing is the word of God. As darkness is coming upon Israel, it comes, and it's not random that the word of God is rare in that day. Likewise, when something new is being born, it's not rare It's not random that the word of God begins to be spoken again and declared again among God's people. Um, Judgment against Saul um, is not so much just tied to his particular actions, but rather Samuel says judgment has come upon him because he has rejected the word of the Lord. What is central, what is always central to our life, to our hope, to us understanding what it means to live faithfully as a people of God in the world, what is central to your families and your marriages and the raising of your children is what do you do with the word of God? And you will either reject it, it will either be rare in your home, in your church, in your job, in your own mind, or it will be vivid, it will be present. It will always be there. The word of God is central. So may it be read, may it be sung, may it be prayed. Fathers, read the scriptures to your children. All of you, open your Bibles and and commit yourself to reading the word and trusting the word and obeying the word and loving the word. Four. There is always in this age the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There is always in this world enmity between the serpent and those who are the children of the serpent, those who reject the word of God, those who do not trust and love God, and those who do. It has been a surprise for many in our age, for many evangelicals in our age, that to to read the scriptures and to trust the scriptures and to teach the scriptures and to hold that these scriptures are true in all that they say, whether about sexuality or whether about marriage, but whatever particularly the contested issues in our day are, 
um, it has been surprising for some that there would be people who get angry and are offended by that. What we see in the book of Samuel, what we see throughout the Bible, um, that's established for us right at the beginning of Genesis, is that there is enmity between the serpent, between the dragon, and between God. And therefore there is enmity between those who follow the dragon, who trust the dragon, who trust the lies of the dragon, and those who trust and believe and love the word of God. And the difference, the line that runs through the entire Bible, dividing these two people, is always faith. Do you trust what God says or do you reject what God says? Five. The Spirit of the Lord empowers God's people as a people to make war on idolatry, to make war on the enemies of God. Again, this is a theme that shows up in Samuel, but it runs through the whole, uh, the, the whole gamut of Scripture. Um, the purpose of the coming of the Spirit of God, whether we're talking about the book of Acts, or you're looking at the book of Revelation like we did earlier, or you're looking at what the Spirit does, if you look carefully, in the book of Samuel, is he fills up the people of God to make them bold, to make them clear, um, to make them give testimony to the greatness of God, the glory of God, the power of God, and by his Spirit to overcome the enemies of God. And so we pray that God would fill us when we receive the promised gift of the Spirit of God. He doesn't just give you the Spirit of God as a kind of sentimental comfort in this life. He he rather fills you, fills us as a people that we might boldly stand in a city like Denver and proclaim what is true. um, That we would be like the witnesses in Revelation 11. um, That our words, the words as we speak the Word of God would be like fire in the streets. Six, we have to learn again. We'll be speaking a lot more about this in the coming weeks. The covenant is central to understanding how God interacts with his people in the world and to understanding the whole shape of scripture. We live in an individualistic age in which we think about God dealing with us merely as individuals, not knowing that God has formed us into covenant families, and not just covenant families, um, but, but a collection of the covenant families called the church, in which God has given enormous and glorious promises and filled us with the Spirit. Seven, unfaithful sons and faithful adopted sons. Again, here in Samuel, we see a theme that runs throughout Scripture that foreshadows Things we see like in in Romans chapter 11. um, Where God not only um, brings about his covenant promises to his people, but grafts into that people adopted sons, like most of us in this room. Uh, Grafted into the covenant promises given to Israel in and through the work of Jesus. Receiving all the glorious good kindnesses of God. Not because we were born into it, but rather we were born again into it. Receiving the promises of God given to us in the son of David, Jesus. And last, judgment and the good news. Um, It's become difficult in our day for us to see how judgment can ever be good news. It's always bad, right? God comes and he judges wickedness, and then we face our own destruction. 
And yet what we find in Samuel and what we find in the gospel itself is that God brings judgment and through that judgment raises up for himself by his mercy a people that belong to him. A people who will know him and love him. A people washed of their sins. A people girded up by the spirit of God and sent into the world empowered to love him, to trust him to love one another and to love their neighbors. And so God comes bringing destruction and judgment on Israel, but it's precisely through that judgment, even the judgment of a king like Saul, that he gives birth to mercy and the coming of David and the restoration of God's people and the restoration of his worship. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus comes and on the cross bears the full weight of the judgment of God. There has been no darker moment in all the history of the world where the wrath of God is poured out and extinguished. And it's precisely there, in that place of darkness, where the sun is darkened, literally. That grace and mercy and the restoration of God's people is born. Let's pray and prepare for communion.